Fucking Bart. 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 The Hissing of Oliver's Head Apparently, Dr PJ Little was widely known to be the most boring man in Cambridge. But no one had told me, and so I had blithely signed up for his course, expecting something rather special. He was an authority on the 17th century. I even had one of his books on my shelves back home. But Dr Little, as I soon discovered, could suck the stardust out of anything. His rooms were accessed by a narrow spiral staircase in the corner of a dank ancient courtyard. When I entered, he was at his desk by the window, surrounded by stacks of books and papers which covered every surface and the best part of the floor space too. "'Sit!' he called, pointing to an armchair behind him. At exactly two o'clock, he rose and walked solemnly to the fireplace in front of me. There were no pleasantries, no eye contact, He didn't even bother to establish my name. He closed his eyes to gather his thoughts and then began in a dry, reedy monotone. It went on for quite a while and I began to become uncomfortable. Perhaps I should explain. This was only my second week at Cambridge and I was the first kid ever from my school to get a place at such an illustrious institution. Intimidated does not begin to describe how I felt. Was I expected to interject, contribute, ask questions... Apparently not, because when I tried, Dr Little reacted by squeezing his eyes tight shut, as if my impertinence pained him. After about twenty minutes of this, the door opened, and a young guy in a crumpled jacket and grubby white trousers shambled into the room. "'Sorry I'm late, Dr Little,' he muttered, sweeping back his long fringe. Then he collapsed in a heap in the armchair next to me. Within five minutes, he was fast asleep. Another five, and he was snoring gently.' I was aghast, but Dr Little seemed not to notice. At precisely three o'clock, he came to an abrupt halt and without further ado returned to his desk by the window. As if on cue, the young guy next to me shook himself awake and got to his feet. Thank you so much, Dr Little, he said and made for the door. He clattered down the spiral staircase and was halfway across the court by the time I caught up with him. Are you okay? I asked. Absolutely fine he said, as though it was the most bewildering question in the world. If you want to look at my notes, you're very welcome. It's all right, he said. I keep it all up here. And he tapped the side of his head. Very kind, though, he added, starting to move away. I'm Clive, I said. Nice, he said, backing off and giving me a little wave. And you are? Jamie, he muttered over his shoulder, and then ducked under a low archway and was gone. The following week, We were both there on time. But apart from that, the supervision followed exactly the same course as before. Dr Little talked, Jamie slept, and I took notes furiously, pinching myself, digging my nails into my skin to stop my eyelids from drooping. I made it through the hour, but only just. By the third week, I was dreading Dr Little's supervision. In fact, I was starting to think I had come to the wrong place entirely. I thought that if I did what I was supposed to, I would fit in, I would get on but it didn't work out like that. I'd struck up conversations, I'd joined clubs, I'd smiled at people, asked them questions, but to no avail. Everyone else seemed to have somewhere else to go, someone else to see, and so I still ate every meal alone in the college hall every evening. I sat and nursed a drink by myself in the college bar. But that was okay, I told myself. I was there to study. 
And then came Dr. Little's third supervision. I have to confess I have almost no memory of it at all. I must have dropped off even before Jamie did, because one moment I was trying to concentrate on the drone of Dr. Little's voice, and the next, Jamie was shaking me by the shoulder. Clive, he said, wake up, Clive. I opened my eyes and checked my watch. It was 3.10. Oh, my God, I couldn't believe what I'd just done. I was mortified. Dr. Little stood over us with a face like thunder. One sleeper he could obviously accept, but both of us was too much. I realised he was holding something above my head with obvious distaste. My eyes came into focus and I saw it was the essay I'd turned in the previous week. Poorly sourced, weakly argued and execrably written, he pronounced, and dropped it in a fluttering heap onto my lap. And nothing at all from you again, he said to Jamie in a voice dripping with disdain. Jamie went to say something, but Dr Little held up a hand to stop him. Frankly, gentlemen, I can see little point in continuing. Neither of you displays either the aptitude or the interest. But Dr Little, I started. However, he continued, I have a suggestion which you may find more appealing than the pursuit of learning. Jamie leant forward in his armchair. I propose a quid pro quo. I'll see to it you get the grade you need if you perform a small service for an acquaintance of mine. If you choose to accept, I'm sure he will also pay you, and knowing Pelham, he will probably pay you rather handsomely. This seemed rather odd, but Jamie had no doubts. Thank you very much, Dr Little, he said. We'll do it. And so the following afternoon, we found ourselves in Jamie's little Ford Focus on our way to meet Dr Little's acquaintance. I was still absolutely furious with myself. It was that phrase, neither the aptitude nor the interest, that really stuck in my craw. But Jamie didn't seem bothered. He hummed quietly as we headed through the eastern suburbs of the city and out into the bleak, flat, empty landscape beyond. We'd been going about an hour when he took a sharp left off the main road, crossed a little bridge over a dike and went up a long drive towards a stand of trees. Behind it stood a large Victorian manor house, all red brick and mullioned windows, with a crenellated turret at each corner. The acquaintance, Pelham, was waiting for us on the steps leading up to the porch. He was short, rotund and completely bald, and in crisp white slacks and a purple quilted smoking jacket, he looked like he could have walked straight off the set of a Noel Coward play. The moment he opened his mouth, though, the effect was shattered. "'Leave the motor anywhere you like!' he shouted. We don't get a lot of traffic come through here. He was as broad a cockney as I had ever heard, all glottal stops and dropped H's. You boys studying history then, he said as we got out of the car and he waddled over to shake our hands. Why's that then? Got a passion for it, have you? Or is it just a passport to make in a bob or two? I wasn't sure how we should answer. Nothing to be ashamed of, he said as he steered us towards the front door. I did maths at Trinity and I turned that into a nice little earner, I can tell you. He motioned us up the steps and into a grand stone-flagged entrance hall. In front of us was a handsome wooden staircase, the bottom step flanked by a pair of tall Chinese vases. I know what you're thinking, he said. How come a badly spoken old git like me ends up going to Cambridge and living in such a posh house, eh? Well, I'll tell you. I got into Cambridge because I was good at sums, and I made a pile because I was good at business but I never seen why I should change the way I speak. I like it. It keeps me close to my roots, because my heart was never really in the maths, nah. It's the past what I love, like you boys, like you historians, eh? 
He rubbed his hands together and gave us each a leering kind of grin. So, he said, what has Tiny told you about all this? Tiny? I asked. Dr Little to you, probably. He's an old mate of mine. I call him what I like. Ah, well, he hasn't really told us anything. Not one of life's natural communicators, is he? He sighed. He told you about the money, though. He mentioned there would be a payment, said Jamie. And you didn't think to ask him how much? Well, no. Boys, boys, you have got a lot to learn about the world. He shook his head. All right, here's the deal. I'll give you each a grand in cash now. There'll be another when you send me proof the job's done. Blimey, said Jamie. But what is it that you want us to do, I asked. Good question. Come on, let me show you. He led us down a long corridor, lined with display cases of a kind you might find in a local museum. Above were shelves filled with various old artefacts, Art Nouveau pottery, scent bottles, amulets, Delftware teapots in various colours. We went through the door at the end, past another staircase, and into a curious round room with six chairs arranged around a circular table. In the middle of it was a battered, badly scratched metal box about twice the size of a biscuit tin. He signalled for us to sit and then looked around impatiently. Oh, Mrs Gibbons, Mrs Gibbons, he said. This is happening more and more. I asked her to set out a bottle and some glasses. Never mind, I'll go and fetch them myself. Do excuse me for a moment, boys. As soon as he'd left the room, Jamie leant forward excitedly in his chair. Two thousand pounds, he whispered. Each? What the hell do you make of that? I'm not sure, I said. It doesn't seem quite right to me. Oh, come on, Clive, lighten up. How often do you get a bit of luck like this? Before I had a chance to respond, we both suddenly sat bolt upright in our chairs. Jamie's eyes swivelled one way, then the other. Did you just hear something? he asked. I had. It had been a hissing kind of voice. It hadn't spoken more than a few words, none of which I caught, but there had been a strange malice in the tone. Pelham bustled back in, with a bottle of champagne and three flutes in his fingers. He looked from one of us to the other. "'Are you all right, boys?' he said. "'Yeah, yeah, we're fine,' gulped Jamie. "'Well, that's good. You both look a bit peaky, do you know that?' He opened the bottle and went to pour us each a glass. "'No thanks,' I said. "'It's a bit early for me.' "'Oh, no,' said Pelham. "'No one in this establishment refuses a drink. You'll understand why in due course.' He finished pouring and raised his glass. We all clinked, and then he began. So, boys, you are two of the privileged few. Let me show you the greatest treasure of the house. He set his champagne down on the table, reached towards the metal box, and undid the clasp at the front. Then he lifted the lid, and as he did so, the four sides fell away to reveal a blackened, slightly shrunken human head. Wow! whispered Jamie. That is gruesome. Its mouth was half open, and most of the ears and nose were missing. A sharp piece of metal protruded from the top of the scalp. Jamie was staring at the thing with a look of absolute horror, and I knew what he was thinking, because the same thing had occurred to me. Was this what had hissed at us just now? But it was an absurd idea, and I put it to the back of my mind. I tried to concentrate on what Pelham was saying. All right, do you want to guess who he is? No? All right, I'll give you a clue. 
Think English Civil War. Cavalier or Roundhead? asked Jamie. Roundhead, I think we can confidently say. We both sat in silence for a few moments. Come on, said Pelham, come on, you're historians. Say the first name that comes into your head. OK, said Jamie, uh, Oliver Cromwell. I couldn't believe he could be such an idiot. It was a stupid thing to say. But Pelham didn't seem to think so. In fact, he gave him a little round of applause. It is indeed, he said, the Lord Protector, the only uncrowned head of state this country has ever had. Bloody hell, said Jamie. You're telling us this is his head, Oliver Cromwell's head, right here. Pelham sat back in his chair, grinning from ear to ear. But I wasn't going to let him get away with this. No, I'm sorry, this can't be Oliver Cromwell. Oh, really? said Pelham, raising an eyebrow. And why's that then? I knew this because when I'd arrived at Cambridge, I'd spent a few days going round the colleges, doing the whole tourist trail, King's College Chapel, Trinity Great Court, the Wren Library, and I'd come across Cromwell's head. Because it's buried in one of the colleges, I said. I've seen the plaque on the wall. You're right, said Pelham. There is a plaque. It tells you that Oliver Cromwell's head was buried near that spot in 1960. Which is a bit odd when you think about it, isn't it? More than 300 years after he died. It hadn't struck me at the time, but it was rather curious. Do you know the story? We both shook our heads. Well, it's had a rather chequered history, this head. When King Charles II returned to claim the throne of England, he had Oliver Cromwell's body dug up, see? Chopped his head off and stuck it on a spike. That's the metal thing you can see just here. Pelham's finger hovered over the metal point piercing through the top of the skull. Anyway, they stuck it on top of Westminster Hall as a warning to anyone else who fancied causing trouble. And there it remained for about 25 years until one night it blew down in a storm. Legend has it he was picked up by a soldier standing sentry underneath who took it home with him. After that, the picture becomes a bit confused. It seems it became an object of curiosity. He got bought and sold, passed from hand to hand, put on display, shown off down a pub. This went on for years and years and years, 300 years to be precise, until someone decided enough was enough and they had him buried in an unmarked spot in the grounds of his old Cambridge college. I wasn't quite sure where this was heading. So you're saying that is where he's buried then, I said. Ah, well, no, not really. You see, the thing most people don't know is that someone came and dug him up again. No, said Jamie, you're kidding. Pelham was enjoying himself enormously. He picked up the bottle and topped up our glasses. It was the late 60s and Cambridge was a funny old place. There were barefoot hippies wandering about off their heads on acid, hairy radicals preaching anarchy and communism and such, and someone had the bright idea to see if they could dig up Mr Cromwell here. He'd only been late to rest a few years previous, so someone must have known where he was. Because they found him all right, and one of them smuggled him back to his room and kept it as a trophy, you know, a symbol of a revolution. The authorities must have known he'd gone missing, but they didn't know who got him, so what could they do? They hushed it up. And then came the night of the Garden House riot. February 1970, I remember it well, it was a political thing. There was a meeting going on at a hotel down by the river, and the lefties were determined to stop it. So a mob of them gathered there one night to make their feelings known. 
and a few of them decided it would be a good idea to go and fetch Oliver here, so he could join in the fun. They carried him through the streets, chanting, singing, through the market square, along King's Parade, and down to the garden house. But by the time they got him there, things had started kicking off. The students were throwing stones, banging on doors, and the staff had got a fire hose and were squirting out a first floor window. The police had started arriving too, and they were trying to put a cordon round the place. There was a lot of pushing and shoving, punches being thrown. Things were getting ugly, you know what I mean? Well, I'd gone along just to see what was happening. I wasn't involved. Oh no, I was the kind of nerdy little geek who kept his hair short and wore a tie to lectures. But when the police started actually arresting people, one of the airy blokes came over to me with this strange box and said, would I look after it for him? I guess he thought the police wouldn't be bothered with anyone who looked as boring as me. Of course, I had no idea what was in it. And so I took it back to my rooms. When I got there, I opened it up and there he was, Oliver Cromwell. And he's been with me ever since. Amazing, said Jamie. Yeah, and I'll tell you something else. Do you know who that hairy radical was? Who? He was tiny. What? You mean Dr Little? Yeah, he wasn't always quite as boring as he is now. There was a moment's silence as we let all this sink in. Pelham had told his story with such conviction that it was tempting to believe him. But surely not. I looked again at the grotesque object on the table in front of us. I remembered reading something about Cromwell's head being placed on a spike, so that chimed with Pelham's story. But then again, plenty of heads were put on spikes back then. I didn't know what to think. Jamie drained his glass and said, So, where do we fit into all this, then? Well, said Pelham, I'd like you boys to put him back. I'm sorry, said Jamie. I'd like you to put him back where he belongs, in the college garden. What? Not in any specific place, just somewhere near the chapel. But why, I asked, why on earth do you want to put it back? If it's been missing all these years, I mean, why bother? Well, this brings me to the meat of the matter, said Pelham. Over the past few weeks, I've been getting the sense that something is not quite right in this house. It started with Mrs Gibbons. For the last 15 years, she has been the most exemplary housekeeper. But just last month, I go to the upper landing and notice that my collection of Japanese erotic art is no longer in its customary place on the wall. What have you done with them, Mrs Gibbons, I ask her. I just popped them away in a drawer, she said. I thought they were no longer appropriate. Well, I was puzzled, but I thought no more of it. Then the following week, I go into the kitchen and she's pouring something down the sink. It's only one of my finest bottles of almond, Yag. What do you think you're doing, Mrs Gibbons, I say. I thought it was getting a bit old, she said. Now, she knows as well as I do there is no such thing as an armagnac that's too old. No. There was clearly something muddling her thoughts. And I started to wonder what it might be. Could it just be that she's getting on a bit? Or was there more to it than that? Because when I came to think about it, I'd already noticed something different in myself. I popped down a wine cellar to choose something nice for the evening. And I realised there was this voice in my head, whispering. Are you sure this is wise, Pelham? 
Not today, perhaps. Maybe a period of abstinence would be a good idea. It is terribly bad for you, don't you know? Well, of course I ignored it, but I was puzzled. I can honestly say I'd never had a thought like that in my entire life before. But it didn't stop there, because then I'd settled down in front of the TV to watch the news, and there it was again. Look at these degenerates. They deserve everything they get. They should lock them up and throw away the key. Now, where had that come from? Because I'd never been one to pass judgment on other people. Live and let live, that's me. No, I had the definite impression that something or someone had started creeping into my thoughts. He paused for a moment and took a sip from his glass. Then just last week, I had a couple of old mates over for dinner. We were right here at this table. I got Mr Cromwell out of his box, just as I have now. I popped out the room for a few moments, and when I got back, I found a pair of them in a state of shock. What's wrong with you two, I said. And this mate of mine, he looked me in the eye and he said, It spoke. What? It wasn't exactly that he spoke, said my other mate. It it was more like he made a kind of hissing sound. Shit, muttered Jamie. But Pelham didn't appear to hear. He continued, I thought they just enjoyed a bit too much of me claret, but they were both adamant. And when I went to refill their glasses, I realised that neither of them had touched a drop all night. Pelham paused and looked from one of us to the other. Are you boys all right? He said. We must have been as white as sheets. We're fine, said Jamie quietly. Pelham continued. And it was then that I got the idea that whatever was not quite right in this ass might have something to do with Mr Cromwell here. I mean, he was the man who shut the alehouses, wasn't he? The man who closed the theatres. The man who even cancelled Christmas, for God's sake. Probably the most miserable sod this country has ever produced. Were they his thoughts creeping into my head? I asked myself. Was there something stirring in him? Was he somehow reawakening? The longer I thought about it, the more convinced I became. I could hardly believe the nonsense I was hearing. Pelham was clearly at an advanced stage of insanity or an extreme alcoholic or maybe both. And yet, and yet both Jamie and I had heard that same hissing sound he'd mentioned. So what the hell was this all about? Jamie pushed his fringe back out of his eyes and said, and it's definitely £2,000. Each. Pelham reached inside his smoking jacket and produced two slim wads of £50 notes. Second payment on production of evidence, he said. He pushed the notes across the table towards us. Jamie picked up his pile, and they both looked at me. I'm going to have to think about this, I said. Pelham insisted we stay to dinner, and well before he'd uncorked the fourth bottle, it was clear that Jamie would be in no fit state to drive back. The two of them were getting on famously. Jamie turning on the charm, Pelham delighted to have such an appreciative audience for his old yarns. I endured it as long as I could, staying mostly silent. But by ten o'clock, I'd had enough, and I got Pelham to direct me to one of the guest bedrooms. I left the two of them chortling over large tumblers of single malt whiskey.
I sat up in bed a long time, turning things over in my mind. My initial thought was that I was the butt of some elaborate practical joke. It was the kind of thing I could imagine Pelham enjoying. But if that was the case, how come Dr Little was involved? Anyone less like a prankster, it was hard to imagine. All right, so if not a joke, uh, was it some kind of hoax? But to what end? Who could possibly benefit? No, the best explanation was that Pelham was simply a deluded old fool. And as that was the case, I resolved to have nothing further to do with the whole business. I remember quite clearly making that decision before I turned out the light. I'm not quite sure what happened that night, but I woke up in the morning with a strange sensation in my head. It's hard to describe. It was like there was an irritating foreign body in there, like something stuck between your teeth. I also realised that I'd changed my mind about Pelham's proposal. It seemed that somehow the quid pro quo we'd made with Dr Little had risen up the agenda. Because in the cold light of day, I told myself that I needed that grade from him. I told myself I couldn't start my university career with a failure. There was a logic to my decision, of course, but looking back, I see that maybe this was the first sign of things to come. Pelham and Jamie were already at the table when I went down for breakfast. Well, said Pelham, don't keep us in suspense. I'll do it, I said. Good lad, said Pelham, and he clapped me on the back. Jamie was too hungover to speak until he'd had his third espresso, and I was pretty sure he was too hungover to drive as well. But that wasn't going to stop him. At 11 o'clock, we got into the Ford Focus and made our way back to town, with the head in its box on the back seat behind us. We'd been going about 20 minutes when there was a sudden rush of noise. Ye are a pair of mercenary wretches! Shit! shrieked Jamie, slamming his head back against the headrest. The car lurched to the left, skidded across the verge and clipped the end of a long brick wall. He brought it to a halt and banged his palm against the steering wheel. What, what the bloody hell was that? he said. You heard it, didn't you? I had. We both turned round and stared at the box. I'm pretty certain it came from in there, I said. We looked at one another, and then it let out another long, malevolent hiss. Oh my God, said Jamie, shit. He stumbled out of the car and bent over with his hands on his knees as if he was about to retch. Then he pushed his fringe out of his eyes and pulled himself together. I admit it, I was rattled too. I could make no sense of what was happening, and I certainly didn't want to be by myself in the car with whatever it was on the back seat. I got out and joined Jamie as he looked at the damage and rubbed his forehead. One of the indicators was cracked and there was a long, ugly scrape down the front wing. Look, I said, I don't know what's going on, but I think maybe we're in too deep with this. I vote we turn round and take it back. What? He looked at me as if I was deranged. Do you seriously think I'm going to hand back a thousand pounds cash? No bloody way. And he got back into the driver's seat and turned on the engine. We were almost at the edge of the city when it spoke again. You would sell your country for a mess of pottage. Jamie's hands twitched on the wheel, but he stayed in control this time. Shut up, he shouted. It paused for a moment and then resumed. You would betray your God for a few pieces of money. Jamie shouted again, but to no effect. It continued on and off in the same vein all the way through the suburbs. In fact, he seemed to grow in strength the closer we got to the centre of town. Is there 
a single virtue now remaining amongst you. Is there one vice you do not possess? Jamie suddenly pulled the car off the road and said, Look, this is freaking me out. I I can't handle this. You're going to have to take him from here. What? What do you expect me to do with him? Well, just keep him until we bury him tonight. You haven't done anything else for your money. The head hissed again. No, I'm sorry, Jamie. You were the one who insisted we go through with this. Why don't we just turn round and park up somewhere out of town for a few hours? Then we can drive in this evening and bury him then. Because there is no way I'm putting up with that thing for an entire afternoon. Either you take it or, I don't know, we just get rid of it. There was another long, hideous hiss from the back seat. Well, we can't do that, can we? I said. Can't we? Of course we can't. Oh, come on, Jamie. We've taken the man's money for one thing. But he won't know. We'll just bury the box and send him a photo of that. You don't need to feel sorry for him, a stupid old bastard with more money than sense. So what are you suggesting? We throw it in a rubbish bin? The head of Oliver Cromwell? You can't be serious. No, I'm not saying that. He got out of the car. So what are you saying? He took the box from the back seat. Uh, What are you doing, Jamie? I say we chuck it in the river. No! Jamie started jogging up the road. Jamie, no! I unlocked my seatbelt and raced after him. I caught up at the point where the road crossed the cam. It was a popular tourist spot with a view over a quaint wooden footbridge and the huge brick wall of an ancient college rising sheer from the water. Jamie had balanced the box on the stone balustrade and was fiddling with the catch. No, Jamie, I said, you can't do this. Just watch me. No, Jamie. I grabbed his arms, but he already had the catch open. I was aware that a small group of Chinese tourists across the road were pointing and taking photographs. He was tipping the box towards the river. I I tried to stop him, but he had the momentum. No, Jamie, no! The head slid out, and as it tumbled towards the water, things slowed before my eyes. The splash rose in precisely separated silent droplets, and then the waters closed with a silent swirl. And as they did, I glimpsed the head staring up at me. Although this time it didn't have the ruined, battered, blackened features that I'd seen at Pelham's the night before. No. This time it was the stern, autocratic face of his famous portrait. The face I'd seen so many times in books. He held me in his steady, contemptuous gaze. And then he sank into the muddy depths. Good riddance, I heard Jamie say. I came to and glared at him. You idiot! I paced up and down, holding my head in my hands. You idiot! You idiot! I was so upset I was almost in tears. The Chinese tourists had wandered off, distracted by something else, but Jamie was still leaning over the balustrade, clutching the empty box. "Uh Uh-oh, he said. What is it? I asked. He pointed to a spot underneath the wooden bridge where the surface of the water had been broken by a round object, trailing a line of bubbles in its wake. Oh, my God, I said. Very faintly, we could hear it hiss. Which of you have not bartered your conscience for bribes? Oh, my God, what are we going to do? Ah, he won't last long, said Jamie. He'll get run over by a punt or pecked to pieces by a swan or something. Just leave him. And there wasn't much else we could do. He'd already drifted past the college wall and was rounding the gentle curve in the river, at which point he disappeared from view.
idiot! I spat at Jamie once more and stalked off into town. When I got back, I sat at my desk for a considerable time. I found myself unable to shake the image of that face from my mind. It shimmered up at me through the water, its features resolving themselves again and again into a mask of brutal, self-righteous power. And I couldn't stop replaying that hideous, hissing voice. Is there a single virtue now remaining amongst you? The hissing seemed to fill my whole mind like a rising mist. Is there one vice you do not possess? What the hell was going on? Twenty-four hours ago, I had considered Pelham to be utterly insane. But look at me now. I mustered my strength and tried to resist. Whatever was happening to me, I would fight it. I could and I would. I could and I would. I think I was probably still repeating the same mantra when there was a knock on my door just after midnight. I ignored it, but it came again. Clive, Jamie's voice called. Come on, Clive, I know you're in there. Go away, I shouted. Clive, we need to finish this. He hammered on the door again. And again, and again. All right, I said, I'm coming. I opened up and found him standing there with a coil of rope around his shoulder. The empty box was in one hand and the shovel was in the other. I didn't give him a chance to speak. OK, Jamie, I said, I know why you're doing this. It's for the money. And that is not something which is important to me right now. So please leave me alone. End of story. I tried to close the door, but he had put his foot in the jam. Maybe you don't care about the money, he said, but what about your precious grades? I should have known he would play that card. Dr Little said this was a quid pro quo. If you don't see this through, you get a fail on your record in your very first term. How do you think that's going to look? Damn him! My mind was still foggy, but he did have a point, damn him! Ten minutes later, the two of us were padding through the empty streets. Jamie reckoned the easiest way of getting into the college was over the gates that led to a service area at the rear. You're taller than me, he said. You give me a leg up. He managed to hook his fingers onto the top of the gate and then he swung himself up and over. As he dropped to the ground on the other side, I heard him squeal. Bugger, he said. I've done my ankle. Shh. We both listened for a few moments to make sure no one had heard. Then I chucked the metal box over, followed by the spade, and then threw one end of the rope for him to anchor as I hauled myself up. I dropped to the ground next to him and headed in the direction of the chapel as quickly as I could, with Jamie limping behind. The college was completely silent, and dark too, except for the odd light where students were working through the night. We found the chapel and prowled around, looking for a suitable place to dig. Most of the courts were laid to immaculate lawns, so it was no easy matter. Eventually, we settled on a patch of ground behind a bush in the corner of a flower bed. Jamie left me to dig the hole while he kept watch. It took a good deal longer than I'd expected, so when I'd got down a couple of feet, we decided to call it a day. Jamie took a few photos on his phone as evidence for Pelham, then I replaced the earth and disguised the spot as best I could. I was leaning on the shovel and mopping my brow when we heard some footsteps echoing sharply in the cloister of the next court. Run, I said to Jamie. I can't, he said. My ankle. 
the footsteps came out of the cloister and briskly up the path towards us. The bush wasn't big enough to hide behind, so we just stood there, trying desperately to think how to explain ourselves. He stopped a few yards away and shook his head. It was a college porter, a big, imposing fellow in great coat, shiny shoes and bowler hat. "'You won't find him here,' he said. "'I'm sorry,' said Jamie. "'You're looking for Mr Cromwell, I take it. "'You two are the first in quite a while.' "'We stared at him dumbly. "'Well, what have you got to say for yourselves? "'Or are you too drunk to speak?' "'He snorted and then shook his head. "'There was a time when we were always dealing with fools like you.' He leant forward and looked from one of us to the other, and I noticed there was an unpleasant gleam in his eye. Reprobates, he snarled, and I couldn't be sure, but I thought I detected a sinister hiss at the end of the word. Then he straightened up and started undoing the buttons of his greatcoat. By rights, I should march you straight to the police station, but I'm sure neither of you gentlemen want a criminal charge on your record. Well, do you? No, muttered Jamie quietly. Good, then I feel it is my duty to deal with you myself. At first I didn't know quite what he was doing, and then I realised that he was removing the belt from his trousers. It was a wide black leather thing with a big brass buckle. You are here to be educated, are you not, gentlemen? He folded the belt in half and thwacked it against his open palm with a slap that echoed around the courtyard. And I think a bit of muscular correction is what you both need. I couldn't believe what I was hearing, but muscular correction. He thwacked the belt against his palm again. Right. Who's first? I started to back off. Cowards, too, are you? Come on. We'll make men of you. His eyes were wide now and he bared his teeth in a manic grin. We'll make decent, upstanding, real men of you. Come on! And suddenly he lunged at Jamie and grabbed him by his fringe. Jamie struggled, but the porter was built like a tank. He started dragging him towards the arch leading to the next court. Get off me, shouted Jamie, get off! There was a note of desperation in his voice and I should have gone to help, but I didn't because I could hear the hissing rising in my head again. I closed my eyes and summoned all the strength I could to fight it. I heard the porter shout, I'll be back for you in a moment! And when I opened my eyes again, he and Jamie had gone. I have no memory of getting over the wall or, or finding my way back to my room. I woke up on my bed still fully clothed at nine o'clock the next day. The weird events of the previous evening seemed an age away. Had they really happened? I looked around. There was the shovel in the corner of the room, little grains of soil still on its blade. They must have. I took a shower and decided to go out. I needed a change of scene and a chance to think. I found a coffee shop and ordered a large cappuccino. Then I sat in the window and watched the rain. Of course, I should have felt bad for abandoning Jamie like that last night, but actually, I didn't. I should have called him and checked he was OK, but I wasn't going to. Because when I thought about it, Jamie needed someone to teach him a lesson. I'd only known him a few weeks, but he'd already proved himself to be one of the laziest and least principled people I'd ever met. The appalling way he'd behaved in Dr. Little's supervisions, his rudeness, 
The shameless way he'd do anything for money, to say nothing of how he'd helped himself to obscene amounts of alcohol at Pelham's the other night. Oh, I had nothing to be concerned about. A good hiding would probably do him a power of good. Yes, a damn good thrashing was no less than his sort deserved. And as I sipped my coffee and the rain fell, there was something rather comforting in that line of thought, something almost pleasurable in the idea of the porter's belt coming down with a crack on Jamie's bare behind again and again and again. But, but, hang on a minute. Just hang on. What the hell was this? What was happening to me? This wasn't the way I normally thought. This wasn't me at all. It was almost as if... Almost as if... I forced myself to finish the thought. It was almost as if what Pelham had said was coming true. It was as if something else, or someone else, had crept into my mind, was trying to take me over. I was interrupted by a tap on the shoulder. I turned round and saw a young waitress in a plain black apron... She couldn't have been more than 19, but she had a pinched, mean expression on her face. "'You've been here for ages,' she said. "'Haven't you got any work to do? You're a disgrace.' In the way she said that final word, I was sure I could hear once again an echo of the hiss. I did have work to do, but I didn't do it. I didn't go to lectures that day, nor the following one, nor the day after that. It was as if I had withdrawn into the cavern of my mind, as if all my energy was consumed in monitoring my inner world, because it felt like I was under mental siege. If I ceased my vigilance for so much as a moment, I was convinced the hissing would return, each time louder, more confident, more sure of its success. What should I do? Should I warn someone? Could I talk to someone? But who? They would think I was mad, that I had lost my reason. It would be good to know if others were experiencing the same as me. And as night fell, I roamed the streets, peering through windows into other people's lives, looking for signs. What did they mean, those cross looks over the dinner table? Those folded arms, that sudden snap and flare of argument, that woman switching off a TV and stomping from the room? Did they hear the hissing too? Was that why they all looked at one another so sourly? I tried not to sleep for fear that the hissing would grow stronger, and late at night I would find myself by the river, wandering back and forth across the bridges to keep myself awake. There was one bridge in particular that seemed to fit my mood. It was a gloomy spot, hemmed in by the high walls of the colleges on one side and huge willows on the other. It was the third or maybe the fourth night that I'd gone there, and a distant clock had just chimed midnight. I was leaning over the rail, looking down at the black, glassy surface of the water, when I heard the clatter of running feet. A few moments later, two young women rounded the bend of the narrow street and raced towards me. They both wore black academic gowns that fluttered behind them and were running in a desperate kind of way, leaning forward so far they seemed to be almost falling over with every stride they took. I could see the panic in their eyes as they approached, but they didn't stop. They skirted me on either side, one of them half-tripping as she reached the top of the bridge, and then they fled down the other side and disappeared through the trees. 
A moment later, a stout middle-aged woman in a long black dress and pinafore came panting after them. You brazen hussies! She shouted. Come back here, you shameless whores! Then realising she had lost them, she stopped, put her hands on her hips and fixed me with her gaze. You, she said as if she recognised me. Is something wrong? I asked. Her breath came in short, hissing gasps, and I was suddenly afraid. I know what kind of man you are, she said. She wheezed a couple more times, took a step towards me, and suddenly grabbed me by the left ear. Ow! I yelled. There is no good reason to be abroad at this time of night, she said. She had brought her face so close to mine that I could see the bristles on her chin. You are up to no good, and you shall be punished. She was now twisting my ear so hard I thought she was going to tear it off. You wanton, feckless libertine. It was all I could do not to scream with the pain. Let go of me! Let go! You'll have no mercy from me, you vile creature. Let go of me! I shouted. Let go! You, you, termagant! I had no idea how such a strange word had come into my head, but it seemed to do the trick. Termagant, she said, and for a fraction of a second she relaxed her grip. And I managed to pull myself away. Termagant! How dare you! She reached for me again, but I scuttled backwards up the bridge and then sprinted down the other side. Termagant! I heard distantly, and then a long, wheezing hiss. I ran a good half mile before I stopped and caught my breath. At least, I reflected. At least I could now be sure I wasn't the only one. Something was definitely going on. The following morning, there was an email from Dr Little, urgently summoning both Jamie and me to his rooms at six o'clock that evening. I climbed the spiral staircase with a heavy heart. I was met by Dr Little and Pelham, both standing in front of the fireplace with grim expressions on their faces. Sit, said Dr Little, "'Where's your mate?' said Pelham, "'the twerp with a floppy hair.' "'Punctuality is not his strong point,' said Dr Little. "'It doesn't matter,' said Pelham, turning to me. "'You can tell us what you've done with it.' "'With what?' I said, playing for time. "'Don't give me that!' said Pelham. "'He took a step towards me, and he seemed so angry "'that for a moment I thought he was going to punch me. "'You know very well what we're talking about,' said Dr Little. "'The head, Cromwell's head.' And don't lie to us, said Pelham, bending over and bringing his face up close to mine. Don't try and tell us you buried it because we know you didn't. I didn't know how to handle this. How could they be so sure? Should I bluff? Come on, what did you do with him? said Pelham, his eyes staring right into mine. Did you sell him? Oh, where the hell was Jamie? This was his fault. He should be dealing with this. Look, said Dr Little, I can terminate your academic career just like that. He snapped his fingers. And not just your career here. I'll send you back to whatever godforsaken place you come from with a report so damning that not a single tin-pot university in the country will have you. Now, tell us what you did with the head. It was Jamie, I said. He couldn't stand it. It was hissing, saying things. Oh, Christ, said Pelham. And so, said Dr Little. And, and so, well, he threw it in the river. Oh, lordy, said Pelham. Dr Little took a step backwards and leant against the mantelpiece. 
You mean the cam? he asked. She threw it in the cam. Yes, I said quietly. Well, that explains it then, said Dr. Little. I'm sorry, explains what? I said. Tell him, Tiny, said Pelham. It has come to our attention that in certain parts of the city something strange is going on. I was first alerted when the college chaplain told me he'd had a full house on Sunday, standing room only. It had never happened before in his experience, and he's been with the college over 30 years. I checked with the chaplain at John's same story. Even that huge place was fit to bust. Tell him about a JCR, said Pelham. The takings in the college bar have fallen by over 50% in the last seven days. It appears to be a similar story at all the college bars. Same with the pubs. The pit crawl, the mitre, the baron, they're empty, all of them. And there have been reports of unpleasantness on the streets. Teenage mothers abused, gay couples threatened with violence. People have been shouted at for holding hands. Young women ordered to cover up. Now do you see why I told you to bury him, said Pelham. I thought of the porter, the waitress, the strange woman who had assaulted me the previous evening. Yes, I said, yes, I think I do. So where did you throw it in the river? asked Dr Little. It was the bridge up that way? I waved my arm vaguely. The road bridge? Silver Street, said Pelham. Did it sink or float, do you know? It floated, I said. It sort of drifted off. Well, there's a chance it'll have got washed up or stuck somewhere along the backs, said Dr Little. More likely, though, it'll have gone all the way down to the weir, said Pelham. Blimey, I hope it won't have gone over. If it's somewhere in the next reach of the river, it'll be a hell of a job to find. He turned his face again to mine. You damn fool! So, said Dr Little, what do we do? Well, we'll need a boat, said Pelham. One of the college punts? That'll do. Matey boy here can take it down to the weir and have a poke around and see what he can find. Good idea, said Dr Little, and he waved me towards the door. He led the way through a couple of courts and then across a lawn to the river, where a number of punts were chained to the bank. Right, Pelham said to me, hop in and go that way, he pointed to his right. Tiny and I will meet you down at the weir. They unchained the boat and pushed me into the middle of the channel. I'd never been in one of these things before, but I found a paddle lying on the floor, so I knelt in a puddle of water at the front and started to propel it along. The river was not much more than 20 feet across at its widest and felt strangely artificial from this low perspective, rather like a theme park ride. It flowed past walled gardens, under cute stone bridges, past ancient chapels, libraries, perfectly manicured lawns. Every now and again, a drainage dike joined from the left. This was the kind of place where something might get trapped, so I slowed and checked, but there was no sign of it. I went under another road bridge, past the last of the colleges, and came to a part of the river with a road running alongside it to the left and a municipal park to the right. Up ahead, there was a footbridge, and underneath there were some narrow lock gates and a weir, which stretched all the way across to the left-hand bank. It was a cold, clear night, and a three-quarters moon was already casting a steely light. The trees in the park glittered as if hung with silver filaments. It was such an eerie sight that it took me a while to notice the dark figures on either bank. In the park, quite a large number of people, mostly young men, were standing singly, all with their faces turned towards the weir. Some had their heads bowed over books, others their hands clasped in front of them. It was only when I turned my attention to the other bank that I realised what they were doing, because in the glow of the streetlights it was clear they were praying. There were twenty or thirty of them dotted here and there along the bank, 
Beneath a traffic light, a large elderly man swayed back and forth, arms outstretched to keep his balance, his head thrown back as he muttered the same thing over and over towards the heavens. Further on, the slender forms of two young women knelt on the pavement side by side, their backs perfectly straight, palms pressed together in front of them. As I got closer to the weir, I began to hear the rush of water as it tumbled over. Part of the approach to it had become clogged with branches that must have come down in a recent storm, and a great mass of frothy spume had collected in the tangles of twigs. I let the punt drift for a few moments as my ears became accustomed to the sounds, and I realise now that through the rush of water I could hear the hiss, the familiar hiss. Ye sordid prostitutes! I paddled closer, trying to identify where exactly it was coming from. Have you not defiled this sacred place and turned the Lord's temple into a den of thieves? I could feel the rush of current over the weir, tugging at the punt now. Ye are grown intolerably odious. I back-paddled to retain control, and then I noticed some movement in the middle of the footbridge. A dark figure levered himself over the railings and dropped onto the concrete pontoon beneath. As he landed, I saw that he winced with pain. Could it be? Surely not. I turned the punt in his direction to get a better look. He was dressed in black jeans and sweatshirt, and his long, floppy hair had been cut severely short, but there was no doubt who it was. Jamie? I called Jamie! He didn't look up. He knelt on the concrete and started rummaging in the twigs and branches of a large bough which had been washed up just below. Jamie! I called again. But my punt had been caught by the current and was being pulled away from him over to the left bank of the river. He suddenly straightened up. He was holding something in his hands. Have you found it? I shouted and tried in vain to manoeuvre the punt towards him. But still he didn't acknowledge me. Instead, he clambered back up onto the bridge and in a triumphant gesture raised the head high above him. The river water streamed off it. The moonlight glinted on the top of the spike. Ye have no more religion than my horse, hissed the head. Gold is your god. Then Jamie turned his back so that he was facing downriver and stretched his arms behind him as if he were a footballer taking a throw in. There was a scream of no from one end of the bridge and I saw Pelham and Dr Little running towards him. Too late. Jamie jerked his whole body forward and hurled the head as far as he could downstream. As it arced through the night air, there was an ah of approval from the devotees along the banks. You bloody fool! I heard Pelham yell. I stood up in the punt just in time to see a faint splash, and a few seconds later a dark object broke the surface and started to drift downstream, emitting a very faint hissing sound. As far as I know, the head was never found. It may well have got stuck in some reeds and simply rotted away, but I rather doubt it. In my mind's eye, it steered its own bleak course out across the fens, maybe into the river Great Ouse, maybe even out to the Wash and into the North Sea beyond. And then, who knows?
I never saw Jamie again, and I didn't get the grade I needed from Dr. Little. I left Cambridge halfway through my second term. The hissing slowly faded from my mind, as I believe it did for everyone, but I often wonder if it vanished completely, or if it left behind a faint trace in every single one of us. Because it seems to me the world is a little less joyous, a little more zealous, a little less generous, a little more self-righteous, more censorious, more officious, more abstemious, sanctimonious, bossy, fussy, prissy, prudish, priggish, pious than it ever was before. The Hissing of Oliver's Head was written and performed by Elgin Barrett. Technical presentation was by Malcolm Blackmore and music by John Woz. (laughs) 